Hosanna, a fellowship of Christians. Good morning. morning. Welcome to Hosanna, either in person or online. On this beautiful morning, as we prepare our hearts for worship, let's begin in God's word this morning. I'm going to read Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You know, one of the top things that God wants us to do as Christians is to forgive. And to be honest, this can be easier said than done. But the power of forgiveness is evident in those who choose to forgive their offenders. When we forgive others, we free ourselves from the power others have over us, and we are able to extend forgiveness to others because God gives us the grace to do so. Isn't that wonderful? Let's stand and worship together.
seated if you like or keep standing if you like as well psalms 27 verse 1 the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear the lord is a stronghold of my life whom shall i be afraid you know that's a pretty powerful verse you know to consider that God to be your light and, and your salvation and the light of your path is, is a very, very uh, strong uh, commitment to make. And uh, you don't make that commitment lightly. And I don't ask anyone coming in here uh, 
that they have to make a decision on that. But this is a place of, of journey, a place of learning, a place of growing, and a place of understanding. And to know that God is your light and your salvation. And hopefully you can make that decision, you know, as you go through your journey in life. So let's continue in worship. And uh, we'll start with, Whom Shall I Fear? Shall I fear? 
this one I know we haven't done for a while, but it's a very good song, so I want to hear everybody sing it. The splendor of a king Cold in majesty Let all the earth rejoice Let all the earth rejoice He wraps himself
go. Oh, there we are. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, sir. You bet. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. On behalf of Hosanna, we welcome you here today on this Memorial Day weekend. Uh, if there's anyone visiting with us, welcome as well. And all of you online, welcome. I have a myriad of, um, big word, myriad of announcements. Uh, being Memorial Day weekend, one of the first things, oh, no, one of the first things we want to do is get ready to take up the offering. I almost got sidetracked again. I saw at the top, offering. Okay. Uh, ushers are prepared. Let's pray, and then we'll take up our offering. Then we'll get into all this information. Father, we thank you for bringing us together here today. We thank you for this, this weekend that um, we think about all of those who have served this country. Lord, we thank you for the gifts you've given us, for the lives you've given us, for the way that you have enabled us to go about our daily lives and prosper us. And now we pray as we give a portion of that back to you that it would be used to further your kingdom, to encourage lives um, in the way that you see fit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, ushers, now you can take up the offering. And let's continue with Memorial Day. I was wondering, do we have any veterans here today? Would you stand up, please, and let us recognize our veterans. Thank you so very, very much for your service and your sacrifice and for your family's service and sacrifice. And um, I think it would be fitting if we had another word of prayer um, just to commemorate that day and to remember those who served and are no longer with us, as that is what this day and this weekend is all about. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the many lives through all the many decades that have answered the call of service. We thank you for those men and women who served, maybe not even in uniform. In World War II, there were a lot of people who served here at home in their vocations and jobs and sacrificed as well. We thank you for volunteers Lord, we want to remember <clears throat> all of those who selflessly gave their lives for a higher purpose and laid down their life for their fellow man, much as Jesus did for us. And as we reflect throughout the course of the rest of this weekend and tomorrow, and there are parades and services and all sorts of things to commemorate this day, we ask that um, those of us who might have suffered loss would find comfort and joy in and celebrate those lives uh, of service. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And I, another issue that we should address occurred this week. Um, that's something. We all watch the news. We see Uvalde, Texas. I think the hardest thing is it's just these innocent children 
Um, there's a lot of talk, a lot of words thrown around. There's anger, there's revenge, there's justice, there's judgment. Um, a lot of people think they have the answer and that it's simple, it's not. One thing I thought about this morning was, and, and it, I don't want to be controversial, but the, we'll, we'll use the term perpetrator. The insidious evil that our world faces, which we are taught is an unseen evil. We are battling against principalities and powers of darkness. And I think about a life that is brought to a point where there is zero hope. And this is the result. The only thing I would want to say is we, as believers, are to be bringers of light. And even though our emotions might get in the way sometimes, we need to remember that we possess within us the spirit of the creator, who is the ultimate light. And obviously this young man felt that there was no light and he acted out. And um, I think it's our responsibilities as bringers of light. I, I picture a pebble dropping into a pond and those rings radiating out. We never know who we're going to bump into or whose life we will affect, but I ask you to spread light into every life you can. Christ came for the hopeless. And this man was definitely hopeless. And that's all I can say. I don't, I don't know what to say. I, I, um, a lot of times we don't think about the perpetrator. We think about the victims, and, and it's horrible. But look at what brought us to this point, hopelessness. Um, be a bringer of light. Let's, let's pray. Father, we're taught in your word that sometimes we don't even have the words to speak but we're assured that your Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. You know exactly what is happening in the situations and circumstances, and your heart is broken for victims. Your heart is broken for those people who made them victims. Your heart is broken, period, when things like this happen. Lord, the only thing we can ask is that you extend comfort and grace and mercy in the only way that you can, that the loss, which I could not imagine, that somehow you would fill that void, comfort those broken hearts. We pray that light would shine forth and that out of this horrible situation your truth your glory your light would shine 
and that it would go forth out of Uvalde, Texas, and maybe go forth into this country, into this world. Um, your love and your heart and your light needs to spread because you are hope and you are love. And that is what this world needs. It sounds so simple, yet it is so elusive to so many. And we pray that uh, we might be a, a little part of being light bringers in our own little circles, in our own communities, and that those circles would go out. There really is nothing left to say other than uh, we cry out to you. We ask for your wisdom, and we ask for your insight as we ponder these things in our hearts, and that you, through your Holy Spirit, would teach us truth. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. That was a lot harder than I thought it would be. Um, okay. Let's talk about some announcements. Today, I believe, is the last day for our class. Is that true, Randy? Yes, it is the last day for our class. Um, over here in the fellowship hall at 1115, science and other ways of knowing. Also on Tuesday, the day after tomorrow, we are going to be hosting a blood drive here. So please sign up and there's more information out in the foyer on that. And beginning next Sunday, June the 5th, at 11.15, Lauren King is going to begin to take photographs for our pictorial directory. Um, there is a sign-up sheet in the Welcome Center, so there will be time slots available. We ask you to sign up so that we can keep that process moving. Is that going to happen more than one Sunday? Okay, so if you can't do it next Sunday, there will be other opportunities coming up. Uh, everyone is also invited, invited to April Adi's house next week for a uh, baptism right after the service. We're hoping to get started around 1130. Uh, if you need directions or need her address, please visit the Welcome Center and they will hand out those directions. We don't want to, or that address, we don't want to publish that publicly. Also beginning um, on June 12th, there's gonna be a new adult class over here um, in the fellowship hall, and it's going to be taught by Tony Blair. It is going to be called the three, oh, three Johns, three weeks, three encouragements. It's a uh, exploration of three small books in the New Testament. And that'll be June 12th, 19th, and the 26th beginning at 11.15. And as always, if anyone would like prayer after the service, the elders will be available to meet back at the cross and feel free to go back there and visit them. Thank you for your attention and patience. And now it's time for today's episode of Truth or Consequences. And here's your host, Bob Barker.
I am obviously not Bob Barker. By the way, he's 98 years old, so he's, he's still out there somewhere. For those of you that remember that, you have to be of a certain age to have just gotten that one, right? Yeah. Truth or Consequences was on for about 40 years on radio and TV, and uh, I watched now as a kid. The idea was for uh, contestants to answer a bizarre question, which most of the time they could not, or face the consequences, which involved doing something funny to amuse the audience and make us all giggle a little bit. So one of the very first game shows. Now, for the younger ones among us who are going, I don't know what you guys are talking about, that's a little before my time, what's this black and white thing? (laughs) You may be more familiar with a party game called Truth or Dare which requires you to tell either a deeply personal truth about yourself or to perform a dare that another player decides for you. And of course, most people would rather embarrass themselves than tell the truth. Embarrass themselves knowing the dare rather than tell this deeply personal truth. And if you can pardon my pun, there's some truth in that. (laughs) Truth-telling has become something of a rare commodity in our culture to the point where we have to be very intentional about it. Or else we're just going to simply and unconsciously buy into the way the truth is handled and mishandled in our communities. So one of the books I require my doctoral students to read has a revealing title, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies. The author is not an activist. She's an English professor (laughs) and a serious Christian. And she writes elegantly. She would like us to recover intentionality in how we use words in our relationships, in our public discourse, in the way that we even argue with one another so we can hear what is true and so we can speak what is true. And I don't agree with everything she says. I don't agree with everything anybody says, but I, I, I have been personally challenged by her recommendations. I've been much more conscious of my words since I first read her book, which is why I passed that book on to my students and uh, I'd recommend it to you. It's also why I'm doing this message today. I'm trying to tell the truth. Truth, yeah. I got to be able to talk. I'm telling the truth. <laughs> I'm going to try today to tell the truth about telling the truth. <laughs> it's the third in a mini series that Joanne and I have have uh, started two weeks ago called Gospel and Community. And in this series, we're looking at how community has fractured, even disintegrated in our world. How the institutions and the groups that once held us together, and particularly even the church, have become divided and distrusted and denounced with all sorts of negative consequences that we hear about in the news every day. And as Kevin was just reminding us, in some weeks we hear the news with more agony than others. Because the truth about what is going on out there is heartbreaking sometimes. So what's the pathway out of this? Is there truly gospel? Is there any good news that is buried in the middle of everything that our world has become? Yes! <laughs> We've been saying that all year. And what we're suggesting in this series are some community practices, some practical things that we can intentionally choose to do individually and together to help rebuild trust, help rebuild relationships, help rebuild communities, beginning at home. I'm not talking about some grand political vision here so much. It's just the kind of stuff that us ordinary people, us ordinary Christians can put into practice perhaps more fully in our lives that can make a big difference in the world. So two weeks ago, we spoke of gratitude. 
and a little bit on the generosity that results from it. Last week, I touched on faithfulness and the practice of promise-keeping that it requires. And today, it's about truth-telling and the practices of both speaking and living truth. And I would suggest there are a few subjects more relevant in our own times than this. Although I tell you, we are so, our culture is so divided that it even gets tricky. And so I put this message together, I found myself once again choosing my words with great intentionality because there are so many hot button kind of words and phrases and concepts out there that for us to hear what God has to offer us today, we have to be able to listen closely. And I, I've done my best to try to speak it carefully or, or to at least put some notes down that are careful. But uh, let's, let's hang in there with one another and talk about truth to see where God will take us. You see, our, our problem in today's world is not merely that we have a tendency to tell and believe things that are not true. That's what Marilyn McIntyre was saying. It's a culture of lies. Strong words. She makes a case for it. See, that, that's been a problem throughout human history. If you think about it, from the Bible's view of human history, the very first human community recorded in the Bible is in the Garden of Eden. And the very first conversation that we get to listen in on is full of lies and half-truths. It's a conversation between a man, a woman, and an adversary. And it's kind of dark there on the screen, but uh, there are three parties there. And not everything that was said between them was entirely true. And things were, were spun, and there was, it was, it was, things were manipulated. And that pattern has been repeated again and again with dire consequences throughout history. Truth or consequences, right? And as a result of telling their untruths, the serpent challenged them to do something that they really shouldn't have done. Truth or dare, right? Now, on top of that problem, a problem that has existed throughout history, there is another problem. Particularly in our generation, it's become really difficult to know what the truth is and to hold on to it. You see, the problem is we get our truth from competing sources. And somebody's listening over here, and somebody's listening over here. And it's not just that those different sources have competing interpretations on the same stories, but increasingly they don't even cover or tell the same stories. And so there's, we're given different versions of reality. And you all over there, whoever they are, they have their truth, their reality, their way of looking at things. And these people over here... Well, we all over here have our reality and our truth and our way of looking at things. And maybe there's a third group over there and a fourth group back here. And we can hurl insults at each other and denounce the others as liars and miscreants. And we can insist that we and we only have the truth, the correct view on everything. The problem, of course, is that we'll never be able to rebuild community that way as long as we stay in our separate, not quite reality shows. We'll never discover the deeper truth underneath it all that all of us need. Perhaps to our surprise, the world was not so completely different in the first century. Not in Israel, not in the time that Jesus appeared. They had a lot of the same dynamics, which is probably why Jesus was so insistent on truth-telling. Remember what he said about the truth? You shall know the truth, and it shall set you free. 
And Jesus wanted nothing more than to set people free from lies, half-truths, and mistruths about themselves and about God and about the nature of things. They had been told things that had done horrible things into their relationship with God in their own sense of worth and their own sense of hope. And he wanted to show them and to show us the path to truthfulness. He wanted to point to what is really real. And along the way, Jesus demolished the half-truths and the competing reality shows of the opposing camps of his own time. He took on everybody in order that the truth of God that lay underneath it all would become clear. I'll give you an example. How do you respond when you hear something that you really agree with? Something that sounds like truth to you. We've got all sorts of phrases in the English language that we use in such moments. I found this for English teachers. Hey, there are all sorts of different ways to do that. And I would add a few more to it. There would be a little bit more slang phrases like, preach it, brother. I get that when I preach in some of the black churches. Or one I learned when I was a kid growing up, darn tootin'. <laughs> and the ever popular Hebrew word, the only Hebrew word that millions of people actually know, amen. Ah. And you hear something you like, amen, hallelujah. I think I've told you guys here before this, this story, and pardon me if I have, it, was, it isn't in my notes, but it's just hilarious. When I was a young pastor, I was preaching, to, pastoring this church where there was an old man in the congregation who would amen every time I talked about the blood of Jesus. And the more syllables I would use to describe the word, to use the word blood, the more he would, the louder he would amen. So it was only possible because of the blood of Jesus. Amen, amen. And if Floyd was amening, everybody knew the sermon was good. And uh, so I learned, see, this is, this is where you learn bad things. I learned to incorporate the phrase, the blood of Jesus, into sermons on everything. <laughs> In order to get Floyd amen, everybody else think the preacher's doing okay, and they would amen too, and then we would just go rolling merrily on our way. Uh, I was 24. <laughs> anyway, we say amen in our time to indicate agreement with what was just said. Amen, brother. Jesus said amen to call attention to what he was going to say. He said it at the beginning of some of his talks. So when Jesus was getting really wound up, confronting the lies of his time, he would say this phrase, translated into Greek, amen, lego, human. Most modern translations put that as, um, truly I tell you. Okay, so the amen stands for truly. Lego, let go of my ego, lego, my ego, uh, was, uh, was, was, was I, and then the human was uh, humans, you all. Okay, so tr truly I tell you. Now, but I was grew, up, grew up in the King James Version, so does anybody remember being translated this way? Ver see, you know, verily I say unto thee. And did you ever wonder who verily was and why Jesus kept calling her out? <laughs> verily I say unto thee. Oh, I was a strange child. Uh, <laughs> Jesus used this phrase a lot. Sometimes, even in duplicate, it would be amen, amen, verily, verily, truly, truly. And that's when you know you really got to pay attention. Sit up, because you're going to hear some truth now you haven't heard before, and it matters. 
Vincent twice, Vincent twice. <laughs> the double A man, I'm sorry. This stuff, random thought. So Jesus went on a truth-telling spree in his ministry. When he finished his Sermon on the Mount, what did it say? The people were astonished. Not only what he had said, which is really pretty awesome, but with the boldness with which he said it. He knew the truth, and the truth had made him free. And he wasn't worried necessarily whether people liked it or didn't like it. He was trying to free them. He was being honest. He loved them enough to tell them the truth. And then the Gospel of John does this really well. In the early chapters of the Gospel of John, we see Jesus calmly, deliberately telling the truth to a whole variety of characters, often to their surprise, perhaps even to ours. I'll just give you some quick examples. You'll see that Jesus is just being consistent with this. Chapter 2, he's at a wedding, and he says, matter-of-factly, Mom, I'm not ready to do miracles in public yet. I love this old picture, this old icon of it. <laughs> he kind of looks like a son there with this mama, doesn't he? <laughs> I love the fact that she told him, yes, indeed, boy, you are ready to do miracles, and we need you to do one now. <laughs> and he did it. In chapter 3, he tells the learned old Pharisee, Nicodemus, guess what, old man, you need to start your spiritual life all over again. You've missed it. You missed the point. And Nicodemus, from all we can tell, does. He's willing to dare based on the truth that he has heard. In chapter 4, Jesus accidentally runs into a Samaritan woman at a well. <laughs> and one of the first things he says to her is, um, you've been through a lot of men. <laughs> I mean, it's nicer than that, particularly in translation, but that's essence what he's saying. It was not critique. It was no judgment. It was just a knowing and so she hung with him. And when she tried to divert the conversation to theology, she, he says flatly, well, you know, you Samaritans, you're wrong about some things. <laughs> and again, no condemnation, no judgment. Just, I want to give you truth. Don't hang on to that. It's not entirely true. You might think that this truth-telling would be off-putting, but she's actually attracted to it. Remember what she says at the end? She goes into her village, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I don't know how long that conversation went on. <laughs> but you know what? He told her a truth that he had told to very few others to that point. She, out of all the people in the world, was the one he said, you're right, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been looking for. He honored her ability to receive truth. In chapter 5, he's walking with his disciples they see somebody, they ask him, they give him a multiple choice <laughs> test. I gave you one last week. And his answer is, none of the above. In fact, it was wrong question, boys. You missed the point again. And then he shows them what the truth is about this man that they're pointing to. In chapter 6, he ticks off the entire crowd. All those people who are following him because he fed them for free. And he says, in essence, read chapter 6. It goes on for quite some time. Folks, you need me and the life I offer even more than you need bread. I'm not here to give you that kind of bread. I'm here to give you myself the bread of life. And it was the truth. But they didn't like it. So they canceled him. They went home. They went to other messiahs. There were others floating around at that time in history. They went to other rabbis. 
because of his truth-telling, Jesus had fewer disciples when he finished his ministry than he had early on. It's easier to track disciples if you're not going to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. In chapter 7, he takes on the authorities. <laughs> he really takes them on. Chapter 7 gets a little bit intense here. He says, you're all a bunch of liars. <laughs> and you're, you're the sons of the devil who is a liar. <laughs> and these people are all paying for it. See, that was Jesus' passion. He didn't seek out confrontation. Confrontation came to him sometimes. But if you want to get Jesus wound up, then you take advantage of the people that God loves. That's what would wound him up. The worst thing was that these religious authorities were lying about the stuff that mattered most. The character of God and the love of God for these ordinary, screwed up, messy, common people like you and I. Jesus called out each of the political parties of his day. We don't call them that necessarily, but that's what they were. The Pharisees had one view about what to do with, with Rome and politics, and the Sadducees and another, and the Essenes another, and the Zealots another, and there were these four parties, and they disagreed with one another intensely, and Jesus did not belong to any of their parties in the sense of saying only one was right. He called out what was untrue in each of them and, what, and complimented sometimes what was true. And so because he was not belonging to any of this stuff, because he was not beholden to anybody, the authorities decided to teach him a lesson. And that lesson was you do not disagree with us in our version of truth. I don't know why. I guess it's because I knew this message was coming. For the last several weeks, there's been a, a scene from an old movie that's, that's, that keeps coming to me. It's a haunting scene from one of the older Star Trek movies. Hang in there with me. You guys know I'm a Trekkie. Uh, this one's really good. Captain Picard, he's the guy on the right, has been taken prisoner by his nemesis. And he doesn't want to destroy Picard. See, that's easy. You can turn him into a martyr or something. He wants to, he wants to co-opt him. He wants to turn him, get him over on his side. So Picard is tortured mercilessly. And then he's brought in and said, this pain could stop. In fact, life could be really comfortable for you if you would just agree with me on something. No big deal, no political ideology, nothing like that. Just agree on something small and insignificant. Tell me how, tell me how many lights there are behind me. And Card looks up and sees what we see. There are four lights. No, 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 says his tormentor. There are five. Tell me there are five lights. And all this torture ends. And in his weariness, and in his pain-induced confusion, in his desire that the pain stop, Picard is desperately tempted to say, desperately tempted even in that moment to believe, to look at that and believe that there are five lights shining down on him, no matter what is actually true. But after a long and painful pause, he gathers his remaining energy and with a voice hoarse with pain, shouts, it's a very dramatic moment in the movie, there are four lights. He could not be broken. He knew the truth. And neither could Jesus. He was tortured too. And at his show trial, which was not about finding the truth, 
It was about scoring points with the crowds that both political and religious leaders agreed that it was good for the country that a lie be told and that the consequences of that lie be heaped upon the innocent man in front of them. Jewish and religious leaders hardly ever agreed on anything, but on this one thing, they were finally united. Jesus, the truth teller, had to die. Only one of them apparently paused long enough to consider if this was a good thing. Pontius Pilate wondered out loud to Jesus, what, what is truth? What is it anyway? What is the truth about this man? Does truth even matter in this case? His wife pleaded with him, don't be complicit in executing an innocent man. In the end, though, Pontius Pilate sided with his political instincts. Jesus had to die. It's good for the country. It's good for his career. What he did not realize, of course, was that those who have been martyred and marginalized and misunderstood, all the truth-tellers of the centuries, I have a sentence that makes no sense. <laughs> the truth does not die with them. The truth has a life of its own. And you cannot illuminate truth by marginalizing, martyring, or misunderstanding the truth-tellers. Truth has a life of its own, and truth has a healing power. Truth heals. has a healing power for our community that far offsets the harm we do with it and the fear we have of it. And I guess that's the plea this morning in all of my jumbled words here. A little truth could go a long way toward healing our world right now, couldn't it? And that's what we're called to, right? To be people who speak truth well with well-chosen words but also people who live it, people who embody gospel, which is true, in a world that is consumed by posturing pretense and prevarication. Now, it's one thing to say that, and I know I'm sounding like a preacher and saying truth heals and all that. It's another thing to say how. How do we do this? How do we follow Jesus' example, particularly in a world so divided as our own, when family members and friends can't talk about things that really matter because people get upset and intense and start disagreeing with one another, and our relationships matter so much that we don't want to do that? Well, if you're expecting me to say, go and tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, as loudly as you can to whomever you can, you're going to be surprised. That's not my advice to you this morning. Truth-telling is not clubbing the world with assertions. It is being wise like Jesus to know when, where, and how to do it. So I'm going to suggest some questions that we can ask ourselves about truth-telling in our own lives, in our own communities. The first question is, let's back up the Pontius Pilate. What do we mean by truth? What is it? Let's start with recognizing there are different kinds of untruth. I like the way Mark Twain put it uh, 150 years ago. It says there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. I don't know the difference between category one and category two. <laughs> but I've taught statistics, and I have to interpret numbers for, my li for, for a living. And <laughs> I'm particularly aware of that last one. Boy, you can make the numbers say whatever you want them to say. <laughs> I would also add to his list there are lies of omission. 
you know, there are lies of commission, the lies that we purposely tell. There are, there are the things that we don't say that we should say. And as a result, we get the same result as a lie without explicitly telling a lie. And therefore, we feel good about ourselves. Well, I never said. Yeah, but you led somebody to believe something that wasn't true. And you know what I'm talking about. We've all done this somewhere along the way. And then there are the white lies. Things that aren't true but are said in love. No, that dress does not make you look fat. <laughs> or the famous church fib. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step on some toes on this one. I'll be praying for you for that. Now, I know you good folks, when you say you're going to pray for somebody, I'm sure you do pray for them. I'll be quiet. I don't have to say more. Um, or the stories that we tell our kids. And I, I'm not being critical here. I'm just talking about life as it is. Hey, that tooth, the tooth fairy is going to come and give you a quarter for your tooth. Or it's inflation now. How much do you get for a tooth these days? A buck? I don't know. <laughs> That's a different category of lie, isn't it, than some of the others? Those are the lies we tell out of love. And then there are the exaggerations. Exaggerations are not entirely untrue, but taken to extreme. Uh, pastors hear these from time to time. Everybody's upset about what you said last Sunday. <laughs> Only to find out that everybody is me and my sister. <laughs> How many times have we done this to our kids? I've told you a million times. I calculated once how long it would take to some, tell somebody a million times. Um, <laughs> we wouldn't get much else done for, for a number, period of years if we told somebody something a million times. Okay, so do we put them all in the same basket? All those different ways of being untrue of one another? Aren't they different moral qualities to them? So it gets a little confusing sometimes. I'm not the one to stay up, stand up here and say you should never tell your kid about a tooth fairy. It's kind of cute. But it's not true, unless you want to be the fairy. I'm. There are not only different kinds of untruth, but there's also different kinds of truth. First of all, there's bad news truth, which might be the kind that we think of when hearing a message from truth-telling, the kind that Jack Nicholson was referring to in the movie when he says, you can't handle the truth. And you know, some people seem to take delight in bad news truth and telling others what's wrong with them or what's wrong with other people, or what's wrong with the world. I, I suggest sometimes people take too much delight in that. There are, there are the, the critical personalities among us that are just hammering a lot. But maybe we do need some bad truth-telling. Maybe we need more of it than we've been able to tolerate. We need prophets among us who will make us question our delusions and our illusions and come face to face with the truth that sets us free. Let me give an example that's not from reality, it's a fable, but it illustrates this perfectly. The fable, I've referred to this once or twice here before, it's one of the ones that resonates deeply with me. The fable of the emperor who was made and wore proudly a new suit of clothes. And no one was willing to see or tell him that he was actually stark naked except the little child, who said curiously, out loud to his mother, there are four lights. No, I'm sorry, that was the other <laughs> illustration. 
But it's the same principle, isn't it? The emperor has no clothes. And once the kids said it out loud, suddenly everybody's eyes were open and they looked and said, my goodness, the guy's naked. And he realized it too. And suddenly the shame-faced emperor and everybody else could finally see what was really true. No wonder Jesus said we have to become like little children and enter the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes they see what we have closed our eyes to see. And sometimes I say it out loud in the middle of grocery stores and other places. <laughs> okay, there's bad news truth and then there's good news truth, which is what we call gospel. That's what the word gospel means, good news. And this is what Jesus was giving most of the time he was truth telling. This is the stuff we have trouble believing sometimes because it is so good. We're jaded, we're cynical. We assume that there's always an ulterior motive and there's something behind the spin and there's some marketing going on and it can't possibly be true. There's a reason that gospel isn't always believed or accepted. There's a reason that grace is so often rejected. There's a reason that we sometimes prefer to rip our communities apart with our version of bad news truth rather than to tell the beautiful good news of, the, of our truth for God. So this truth-telling thing can be complicated, right? <laughs> so what do we tell? Well, it requires wisdom and grace. Particularly response to the second question, to whom should I tell my truth? Jack Nicholson was right, actually. Not everyone can handle the truth. And it can be a crushing burden for a vulnerable soul. Some are not trustworthy with it. There are people to whom you should not tell your secrets. They will use it against you. And not everybody needs to know everything anyway. Did you know that even Jesus had secrets? How many times did he heal someone and then say, shh, don't tell anyone? Why? Because there was some bad, horrible reason that he was doing his healing and he didn't want anybody to know. No, it, it, it just wasn't time yet for others to know who he was and what he was up to. Some do. Some do need to know. Most of the time, not everyone does. And when I decide to tell the truth, whose truth shall I tell? I've got to be very careful telling the truth about someone else. Now, that needs to be done on occasion, of course, particularly when safety is at stake. I wish, I really wish, somebody somewhere in that 18-year-old boy's life down in Texas had recognized what was going on and told the truth to him and about him. But most of the time, to tell the truth, when we talk about someone else, it's actually gossip. We're passing along truth that is not necessarily the other person's business. And sadly, because most of the time, none of us, can, none of us know the full truth, most gossip has a bit of slander in it. In other words, it contains untruths. Truths that can do real damage to someone. I've been on the receiving end of that occasionally. I've been in leadership. People hear something, see something, and they write a story. And if it's a story that makes someone look bad, well, so much the better. And did you ever wonder, why don't we gossip good news as much as bad news? Hey, I heard the other day that so-and-so was out giving away money to homeless people down at the store. Pass it on. <laughs> we don't do that kind of stuff as much. Why is that? 
Well, this stuff happened in Jesus' day too. One day a woman was suddenly thrown to the ground in front of him. She had done something wrong. She was caught in the act of committing adultery. So that much was true. Did she need to be called out in public? I don't think so. I think this is why Jesus responded with such compassion. Think about it. This is something that never occurred to me before this week, and it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. He already knew her truth before she landed there in front of him on the ground. If he knew the truth about the, the Samaritan woman at the well, then surely he knew the truth about this woman before the Pharisees told him. But rather than doing to her what the Pharisees did, he told her good news truth. That he did not condemn her. And that she should live without letting anyone use her like that. Or without using anyone else like that anymore. And we don't know the rest of the story, but I do hope that the truth set her free that day. You see, the Pharisees were right about the legalities. She was caught doing something wrong. There were consequences for wrongdoing. They told the truth about her. But the Pharisees were wrong on their motivation. They weren't telling this woman's truth in order to set her free. They weren't doing it to heal them, her or their community. They were going for a BOGO special. Buy one, get one. Trap her, trap Jesus. Both at the same time. And so it's just one of my favorite stories, I guess, because I love how he turned that situation around. The ones who slinked away in shame in the end were the ones who were trying to shame someone else at the beginning. Isn't that awesome? So if we don't want to repeat their mistake, let's ask ourselves, why do I want to tell this truth? Do I want to free someone? Do I want to bring healing? Or do I really want to shame and condemn? And be very careful about the justifications you might offer yourself for doing the latter. The serpent in the garden sounds an awful lot like us sometimes. <laughs> or maybe I'll just personalize and speak for myself. I, I recognize his voice because it sounds like me sometimes. And that leads us to the last question that we should ask ourselves before telling the truth. What will happen if I do it? Or if I don't? I guess that's two questions. It's a BOGO special. Buy one question, get two for, for second one free. What am I most concerned about? That somebody's going to hear gospel? Good news, truth? Am I mostly concerned that somebody's going to be put in their place? Maybe it's that somebody's going to be convinced of the rightness of my perspective and change their mind and come over and join my side. There are five lights. Maybe it's that someone will be shamed in abandoning their beliefs and behaviors. Maybe what's concerning me most in that moment is that I might have to have an uncomfortable conversation with someone. I might get back to that in a later message this summer, but... Part of the reason that we struggle with truth-telling is that we are uncomfortable having conversations about truth with people. Well, my encouragement to you is that truth-telling can be very, very redemptive when it's done right and it's done well. 
My experience as a longtime pastor is that people are willing to accept a remarkable amount of truth-telling, even hard things about themselves, even things they don't want to hear, if they truly believe that the person telling them the truth truly loves them, truly has their best interests at heart, truly wishes for them to be free. So let me ask you, does that describe you in your moments of truth-telling? If so, go for it. Because that sounds an awful lot like Jesus. The Lord knows we need some more truth-tellers in our world. My cautions are to, to not to encourage you to, to, to not do it. It's to encourage you to do it with love and great wisdom. Now, of course, to tell the truth means I have to know the truth which means I have to be able to receive truth myself. So suddenly, let's turn the tables here a little bit. Up to now, I've been talking about how do you tell truth, bad truth, good truth, in-between truth to someone else. How do I receive truth, particularly truth about myself? And of course, the most important truth to receive is that I don't have all the truth. There's a 150-year-old poem by John Godfrey Sachs that illustrates this. Joanne and I use this in our classrooms all the time. The Six Blind Men and the Elephant. Didn't we know this one? I think we've used this here once or twice. Uh, it's not terribly politically correct anymore, but hang there with me. It's 150 years old. Six blind men grab hold of an elephant. One touches the side and says, hey, the elephant resembles a wall. Second grabs the tusk and says, no, 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 the elephant's like a spear. The third takes hold of the trunk and concludes the elephant is a snake and the other two are all crazy. The fourth hugs the leg and says, you've all been dipped in formaldehyde. The elephant is like a tree. The fifth captures the elephant's big flappy ear and says, it's a fan. What's wrong with you folks? And the last one swings upon the tail, which he thinks is much like a rope. And then John Godfrey Sachs offers this almost concluding verse. He situates this in India so the people back home in England wouldn't be so offended. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. Everything they'd experienced was true, but not completely true. And then the final last verse, John Godfrey Sachs offers the moral of his story. And to make sure we get it, he actually puts the word moral above this verse and then describes what happens in churches. So often theologic wars, the disputants, I ween, who writes, no one talks like that 150 years later. You, you can hang with it. <laughs> Rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prate about an elephant not one of them has seen. Ooh, that one is just cuts right to the point, doesn't it? Oh, I know what our response is. You know what it is, don't you? Amen. <laughs> it's the truth, isn't it? Not just in our theologic wars either. None of us has seen the full elephant. And until we do, we need others to tell us truths about it that may be different from our own. Not necessarily contradictory. It wasn't a matter of this or that. I think part of the problem in our world is that we're so dualistic. It's always this or that, and we can never imagine it could be both at the same time, and maybe a third or fourth things too, because the elephant has a lot of different characteristics. 
But we have to dare to be willing to be that open to invite other people to say, tell me what you experience when you touch the elephant. And I will benefit from your experience. I will know the elephant better by hearing what your experience is like. In fact, why don't you lead me along the elephant so I can touch where you touch and I can experience that too. Wouldn't that be a wonderful way to go through life? If we dare, and most don't, because truths do have consequences. And one of the consequences is discovering that I have blind spots. Not just my car, not just my rearview mirror. I have blind spots. I have mistaken assumptions. And you know what I might have to do from time to time? I may have to apologize. I may even need to change my mind. Beware of the person who hasn't changed their mind lately. It seems, however, that in our world, most people already have their minds made up. I don't feel in this generation that there's a whole lot of openness to new ideas, new perspectives, new truth. Again, people choose news sources, they choose their teachers, they choose their friends, and yes, they even choose their churches according to whether or not they will tell you again and again what you've already decided to be true. My apologies for the second person pronoun there. I'm not picking on you. I'm talking about the world at large. I think there's a degree when I get pessimistic, I look around and say, I think our society's largely given up on the pursuit of truth. And maybe we've given up on the hope of gospel. Maybe that's why acts of violence seem to be the only thing left for some people. I don't know. That's sad. But you know, in those moments, I'm wrong. There is hope. Because gospel is still running amok in the world. Gospel is still gloriously disrupting things for the better. And gospel is still freely flowing in our community here. Already this morning. Truth has a habit of slipping out of the box as we put it in. Truth has a habit of doing its good work behind the scenes and underground. And that's because truth isn't confined to a list of ideas or facts. Truth is ultimately found in experience, in relationship, which is why Jesus never said, I bring you true ideas. But instead announced what? I am the truth. He embodied truth. And we can too. His truth can live in us because his spirit, which he called the spirit of truth. I don't think I have the slide marked on that, but I have, I have a slide on that lives in us as well. This truth changes the way that we see and changes the way we think. It changes the way we desire what we want. It changes the way we live if we dare. And that's the truth that Jesus is offering us today. That's the truth that heals community. That's the truth that sets us free if we let it. And the question is whether we will. If you're occasionally cynical or skeptical, as I occasionally get, let's try an experiment. Jesus said if you wanted to know whether he was speaking the truth, try doing what he says. That's, my, that's the Blair paraphrase for a longer passage in John chapter 7 when he was talking to the religious authorities who were accusing him of lying. He says, you say I'm not from the Father? Just do what I say. Try it for once. See if it doesn't bring healing. See if it doesn't make things better. 
So I invite you to do that experiment. Let's practice truth-telling this week. Let's do it with great grace and humility and wisdom, yes. But let's see how you and me and the others in this community and in our lives can live more freely and more beautifully and more gospelly. Make up a word as a result. You up for that? I'm going to invite you to help me pray a prayer at the end. If you are, this turns our attention back off of us and our need to do everything right. We're not going to do this right. We're not going to do truth-telling right. It's so hard. We'll screw up. We'll say things that we wish we wouldn't have said. It's okay. There's grace for that. What God is looking for is people who have the heart, the heart to bring healing, the heart to uh, restore things, the heart to make sure that his deeper truth is actually said and seen and lived out and present because that's what's going to change things. So this prayer, um, ask God to help us do that. The burden isn't necessarily on all of us. There's several stanzas here. Um, each one that has an opening line that uh, talks about some element of truth. I'll ask you, you say that line, I'll say the others, and we'll just work our way through it. Um, I adapted this from one I saw online. It was even longer, but uh, I changed all the first-person pronouns to, sec- to second-person pronouns. I, I changed all the singles to plurals. So it was all about me, but this is about truth-telling in community. So let's, let's pray it as us. This is what we want God to do among us. And um, anyway, enough intro. Let's pray. Lord, help us to seek truth today. To find it in places and people we wouldn't otherwise notice. Teach us that in truth there is wisdom and understanding. May seeking truth help us overcome our fears and our frustrations. Lord, help us to strive for truth in all that we do today. That our thoughts, words, and actions may reflect your goodness. Show us that only in truth will we be free to live honestly and courageously, to love wholeheartedly and unconditionally. Lord, help us to cherish truth, knowing that you are the author of all that is beautiful and good and true. May truth reign in our hearts no matter what we encounter today. Lies, mockery, confusion, or betrayal. Your truth gives us clarity and peace. Lord, help us to share truth with others today. All those who are lost and lonely, the brokenhearted, oh my goodness, and the weary. Anyone who is suffering from visible or invisible pain. All those who need gospel. Lord, you created truth. You are truth. Help us to know truth when we see it, learn truth when we are taught it, love truth when it looks like you, live truth in all circumstances. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Please forgive me if I have not talked about truth as well as I would have wanted to today. As I said, this gets tricky in our world. But let us be thankful that there is a God of truth and a Savior of truth and a Spirit of truth who will lead us into all truth, 
even if the preacher doesn't always get it right. Good deal? Go in God's blessings. Have a beautiful weekend.